Laura, thank you very much. It's great to be here. And I'd like to introduce Kelly Steckelberg, who I've known for 10 years. Uh, Kelly is a world-class CFO at a pretty extraordinary company, Zoom. And rather than tell you her bio, we'll sort of walk you through her bio uh, during the course of the conversation. Kelly, welcome. Thank you. And I agree with Laura. Jeff, you are pretty awesome. As you say, we've known each other for a long time. And had the opportunity to work together previously in a CEO board relationship with Zeus. So it's great to be here with you again. Terrific. I'd like to start with the most dramatic day of your career, I imagine, when you first learn you're at Zoom, you first learn that COVID is real, no one's going to work in an office anymore. Zoom has been growing quickly, but you're about to, you, you, you must have had a sense that your life was going to change, Zoom's life was going to change. All of our all of our lives were going to be living on Zoom. What was that like? Do you remember that day? And just walk yeah. us through what that period was like. Yeah. So it was probably a period of like two weeks and it started on March 3rd. So March 3rd, 2020 was the last day that we had the Zoom employees in the office. And I remember it so clearly because the very next day was our earnings call. So Eric, my CEO and I and our head of IR went to the, the empty office with a you know, few tech support people and we had our earnings call. And then from then, I never went back to the office. And then we were just going along because we were a little bit early in terms of sending our employees home. Then it was March 15th. And on March 15th, the whole world changed for Zoom. It's like that was the day that everybody went home and we woke up and just like overnight, sales, support requests, provisioning, like everything was just over the moon in terms of what it had been previously. And just to give you some context, in December, of 2019, we were averaging 10 million daily meeting participants. So 10 million people were joining meetings throughout the day. In April of 2020, that had grown to over 300 million. So 30 times growth in the matter of four months and our employee count hadn't changed. So it was an amazing period of time where every Zoom employee just rallied, did everything they could. It was sort of was this funny period of time, I think for all of us were like, Days were just days. It didn't matter if it was you know, evening, morning, weekend, because we were all doing everything we could to support prospects, to support customers, to keep people connected. We also made a pretty extraordinary decision during this time to give Zoom for free to K through 12 schools around the globe that requested it. And I'm really proud to say that we have 125 schools around the world that have been using Zoom during this pandemic to keep their students you know, educating and really proud of the role that we've played during this time. Well, that must have been an incredible time. I guess there's both the technical side of things and the accounting finance side of things. On the, the technical and operations side, just how did you grow your capacity 30x? You're using outsource, you're, you have relationships with other vendors. I, I know Oracle made an announcement. Uh, what was the situation there? Yeah. So that was really interesting from a finance perspective because we are a January fiscal year in. So we were just starting our fiscal year and you know, basically six weeks into the fiscal year, the budget was out the window because it didn't make any sense anymore. And the way that we historically have done things at Zoom is we have a quarterly review process where people can ask for additional resources. And we very quickly as a finance team realized that we had to pivot and we implemented a process where we were meeting with our business partners every week, every week, and sometimes twice a week, they could come to us and request resources. And it was really interesting, Jeff, because we had, a, as a team, 
we wanted to be really thoughtful about where are the areas that we know we want to invest in for the long-term of doing. So that included engineers, that included sales reps, but where were there areas that potentially we wanted to be thoughtful about maybe flexing resources because we need them, but looking at the future, we would want to solve those needs through automation. So technical support, for example, was a really good example of that. We had a feeling that over time, we would start to be able to address a lot of the questions via bots, and we have done that. So those were areas where we flexed up using temporary resources. Um, and, and that's worked out really well for us. We never wanted to be in a position where we got overcommitted or over-resourced. And then in terms of partners, you're exactly right. Um, Oracle was a great one. Amazon was a great one. We had some great partnerships that really stepped up and we had to shift our model completely because previously 90% of our live traffic ran through servers in our own data centers. And now all of a sudden, because of supply chain constraints and just the, the huge increase in demand, we could not keep up with that way of provisioning our customers. And so we turned to our partners who were amazing and responded very quickly, sometimes adding thousands of servers in a day to keep up with our need for capacity. And we really appreciate that as we all really came together for the common good and it worked. I mean, we're very proud of how reliable our service was during that immense period of growth. Well, people talk about whether or not technology is scalable and you had just an incredible experience there. And, and I, as, as a consumer and as a customer of yours, I'm just so impressed by that you were able to keep your system up uh, with when you had a 30X increase in, in demand. That's extraordinary. So let's go back to the beginning of your career. You're, you grew up in Texas. Uh, tell us about where you grew up, where you went to school, how did you get involved in finance? Sure. So I was born in the Midwest. We moved around a lot when I was in elementary school. And then finally we came to Texas when I was in junior high. And we moved to a very small rural community in Central Texas. Uh, I went from junior high through high school there. I was a graduating class of 15. So that gives you an idea of how small it is. In fact, it's where I'm living again today, which we can come back to in a minute. Uh, but I, while I was there, um, had the opportunity, I was, I was valedictorian in my class, which means in Texas means that you get into every state school, you are automatically granted entry. So I was fortunate- oh, Wait a second, you were first of 15 people? I was first of 15 <laughs> <people>. <laughs> Thank goodness, I was- That's a good strategy. If you want your kids to get into the University of Texas- Into a good school to a high Texas. school where there are 15 yeah. kids, right? Yeah, exactly. So I applied and went to University of Texas at Austin. And this is kind of a little funny side story. My, um, my first uh, major was not accounting. It was actually fashion merchandising. And I don't know, I just thought it sounded really cool. However, because I had been in such a small high school, there were two electives of my high school. There was home ec and there was shop. So I had four years of home economics, which is really funny if you know me because that's really not my strength. However, um, after one class, one day in fashion merchandising in the School of Home Economics, I was like, no way, I'm not doing this. I can't do this again. And I immediately dropped that class and transferred to the School of Business. And I was kind of undeclared for the first year or two, but then this was in the early stages of a really highly recruited program at UT, which is the Master of the Professional Accounting Program, where you go straight through and get your undergrad and master's degree. And that's the program that I ended up graduating through. And it was amazing. I had the opportunity then to interview in different locations across the country and ended up picking San Francisco. And 
went to work for KPMG in the Bay Area and I loved it, loved being in San Francisco. And I ended up staying in the Bay Area for almost 35 years with a, a little stint in Amsterdam along the way as well. But it was, it was really a great experience. And for me, public accounting was a really great start to my career because of the exposure that you get to all the industries. And then, you know, I ended up picking high tech and have been in high tech ever since. Well, that's terrific. So you were, you were at KPMG to start with, and then uh, you joined PeopleSoft. So tell us about that transition. Were you looking to leave? Did they recruit you? Yeah. Uh, people on this yeah. call, many people on this call are thinking about their own careers and like to learn from other people's careers. Yeah. So what I, the, the decision, just sort of the general framework that I've used to make transitions in my career is I've always looked for opportunities to learn more and said yes to opportunities where I was going to be able to expand my role rather than get, I got, you know, it narrowed in as I continued to progress in my career, but early on I kept saying yes. So at KPMG, for example, I started an audit, but I did a rotation into the tax department where I stayed for about a year and a half, which I really loved. Then I did decide to um, transition to out of, out of the firm and I went to PeopleSoft and I went into PeopleSoft in the tax department, which was also a great experience. I learned a ton. And then I was really looking for a change. And so I asked for the opportunity to do a rotation. So I think the other thing I would say to people is like, if there is something you want in your career, don't hesitate to ask. And I was given the opportunity to move to Australia or Amsterdam. And I chose Amsterdam, which was amazing. I stayed there for three and a half years. And it was probably the most amazing period of my life in terms of both personal and professional development really stretching yourself, getting out of your comfort zone is really good for all of us. And because it was a, a smaller division inside of an amazing company like PeopleSoft, I really got to see and do a lot. And my career progressed very quickly during that period of time. And then I came back from, from Amsterdam and moved returned to the States. Then I was in this period of like, PeopleSoft was a massive company at that point. And so the opportunities for me were very narrow, deep technical roles. And I wasn't ready to do that yet. So I made the decision then to go to a smaller company called Epiphany, where one of my former bosses was. And that was a great experience. I stayed there for five years until the company um, was eventually acquired. And from there, I then went to WebEx, which is such an interesting thought now, because at that point, there were only two SaaS companies really in, in the world. If you think about it, it was Salesforce and it was WebEx. And so it was a really revolutionary time in terms of this transition away from like on-prem software to SaaS. So I learned a ton. That was great. It was while I was, the reason that I went to WebEx, partially the reason I went to WebEx was I got to work with this amazing man, Mike Everett, but I really had decided by then that my career objective was to become a public company CFO. And Mike was planning to retire at some point. And I thought this was a great opportunity that I could potentially have the opportunity to succeed him. And then within a year, we were acquired by Cisco, which was a great experience unto itself. I never would have set out to work at a company of that size, but I learned a ton, got exposure to a lot of things. I moved into the consumer division where I also met um, some amazing people. One of them is my current board members, Jonathan Chadwick, who's my boss for a while there. So that was really fortuitous. And I did that for a while and I, and I really learned a lot. But at a certain point, I decided I wanted to be on my CFO path again. And that's when I, when I came to know you, Jeff, is that I moved to Zeus. And this was the first time I'd ever been in a private company. So that was also a really big transition for me. 
Um, I think for anybody who's thinking about a career decision, it's really exciting to be in a private company, but it's, it's very different. The, the momentum, the way you make decisions is very different. And that was a big adjustment for me. But as you know, we went through a lot at Zeus. Um, part of it being we tried to take the company public, which was unsuccessful, unfortunately. But it did create an interesting opportunity for me, which was to become the CEO of the company. And I could spend forever talking about even that transition, but I was CEO of the company for about two years, which was an amazing experience. I think I became a much better CFO because of it and learned a lot about you know, the operations of a company, how product engineering and marketing all work together. So that I really loved. And then at a certain point, um, decided it was time to transition from there took a little break and then came to Zoom. So Eric and I had worked together previously at WebEx. So when I came into the company, it was private, but I hoped again, I was gonna have the opportunity to eventually become a public company CFO. And, and I did. So I joined in November of 17, we went public in April of 2019, and then have had lots of amazing experiences since then. So Eric knew you personally from, from WebEx. As you think about these transitions from KPMG to PeopleSoft, Epiphany, WebEx, Zoom, were all of them people you knew or sometimes were they through recruiters? What was the, the mix? Yeah, that's a really good point. So from uh, in, the way I got my job at PeopleSoft, I didn't know anybody there. I got referred in by someone that I knew. So it was through my network. And then Epiphany, I did go to work. I actually didn't end up working for my former boss. I got a different role, but he recruited me into the company. At WebEx, I didn't know anyone. I worked through a recruiter. So one of the, the big recruiting agencies placed me at WebEx. And then, um, you know, as I said, from here, I came. I knew not only Eric, of course, but I knew also two board members. One was my former boss and one was my former business partner at Cisco. So the longer... Like the longer your career is and the more you stay in the valley, especially you realize how important to cultivate and continue those relationships are as they can really be helpful for you in the future. I was interested that you said you were a controller and you have said at that point you wanted an ambition of being a public company CFO and you worked for uh, the CFO. Was he, what happened, was he older and he was thinking of retiring? Is that what the timing was? How, how did you think about that? That was exactly right. So he... Um, had been at the company for a while, and he knew that this was his last professional CFO role that he was going to have. He's now still a board member, but he was ready to start making that transition. And it was going to be a multi-year transition, but he was absolutely looking for someone at least to have on the bench that had the potential to succeed him. Um, it wasn't guaranteed, like nothing in life ever is, but that was certainly my goal and what I was striving for. And I... I do think it's interesting, you know, CFOs come from all kinds of backgrounds. And I often get this question, like, what do you think is, which route is better to get to a CFO, right? Some people come up the, the way that I did, the more the operational role. Some people come up the banking and deal side. And I think it really just depends on the needs of the company that's hiring. And you should be really thoughtful as you're thinking about a CFO role. What do you think that company needs? And I've obviously aligned myself with companies that needed more of an operational type CFO and, and that's played well to my strengths. It's, you know, the company is really has a huge future of growing through acquisition, maybe a deal related CFO or something with banking in their background would be a lot better suited for that type of role. Well, it sounds like if you're a controller or a head of FP&A and you're sort of one notch below the CFO, 
I'm, I'm, I'm hearing your advice is don't work for a 35-year-old CFO, work for a 55-year-old CFO. <laughs> is, that, is that the advice? Well, I think you have to be realistic about what your boss's ambitions are. I mean, maybe a 35-year-old CFO wants to move on to be a CEO or do something else, but I, I absolutely think you have to be realistic about what, what the opportunity ahead is for you. And if you're if you're aligned to your objectives, not be afraid to make that change along the way. I, if you ever ask, I, and I don't have regrets in my career, but the one thing I have been really loyal, sometimes to a fault and maybe not made changes where I possibly could have. And I think you just have to think through for yourself, when's the right time to make a change versus potentially sitting in a role that might not be helping you achieve your objectives. When you were the controller and, and then you moved to, you were promoted to the CFO of WebEx when it was a division of Cisco, uh, did you feel you were well-prepared? Uh, was it sort of the obvious next step? Was it, were you surprised that you got the tap or, or were there other candidates? What was that transition like? I, I think that I was well-positioned for that at that time because I hadn't been a public company CFO. I hadn't been a CFO at all, but it was actually probably a very natural and perfect step for me in my career in general because I got the opportunity to manage the entire finance team, partner very closely with the GM, and run all of those CFO functions without having the responsibility of the public company, your role, the external facing, the investor relations piece of it, and didn't have to manage all that. So I got to learn one piece of the role without having to do the other one. So it was honestly, it was probably, again, really a gift that I got to do kind of that interim step before I ultimately became a public company CFO. And then when you started at Zoom and you take, took on all those public company roles, how did you, did you, did you create sort of a self-taught course or how did you learn and do all those things? Well, it's, it's a really good question. So I had had the previous opportunity of working in what I consider to be really well-run public companies. And so always, you know, second to the CFO, but you look around and you can observe, okay, what's working well here? who are the key partners to the CFO. And one of the things when I came to Zoom, the first thing that I said to Eric was, I looked around and I realized we didn't have a general counsel. And I said, you know, if you have aspirations of making this be a public company in a short you know, period of time, we need a great general counsel. And it was very interesting because he and I had this discussion round and round a few times. And finally he said to me, okay, why don't you lead the search? And it was great because I got to pick the perfect partner for Zoom, it's a woman named Apernabawa who is now our COO. She reported to Eric, but I cared a lot about that. And I knew that our company wouldn't be successful. I couldn't be successful without that great partnership. And then the other thing I looked at was we also didn't have a head of FP&A. And you know, for those of you that have done this, right, the ability to forecast accurately, to budget, to really understand what's coming ahead is critical. And so I immediately looked and hired a great head of FP&A who, very excitingly, he's gone on to be a CFO himself now. And I think it's, what I did was just look around and see like, not a one man show. Who else do I need to help me on this, on this path that we're gonna, this journey we're about to embark on. And then I also did something else, which is I hired an external firm that did IPO strategy. And there was someone there who was great. And he was sort of like my secret weapon because I knew I could call him and ask him any question that I had, especially since I hadn't been in this process. And 
not have to necessarily expose that I didn't know those, you know, the answers to that to like my board or to my boss. Like there was someone on the side that I could ask any question and not feel stupid. And that was really, really helpful for me. So for anybody who's about to go through an IPO process, if you haven't done it before, I would say like, find somebody to help you with that. It doesn't have to be someone even you're paying. Maybe you have a friend that's a CFO that's gone through it, someone in your network that would be willing to help you. I think anybody that's gone through that, it's such an amazing experience that we're probably all willing to share. But finding somebody that you can ask those questions so you don't feel silly is really important. It was really important for me and helpful for me. And my recollection of your IPO was when it was, the public part of it was just everyone loved it. So people thought Zoom was an incredible company. All the people who you met on the roadshow personally used Zoom. So was it as easy and smooth as it looked on the outside or were there some challenges? There's always challenges, right? Like part of it with us, you unforeseen things. I mean, literally the day after we filed our um, confidential filing, the government shut down. I mean, you can even remember all the way back to like, this was December of 2018. So there are always challenges and things that are unforeseen. And it comes back to making sure you have the right team, you have the right advisors. We had an amazing set, you know, we have KPMG as our auditors, we have Cooley as our external counsel, and we had a really, really great team. And then also just remembering, take a breath, laugh. Like we had a lot of fun during the process. And you have to remember it, it is hard. It's a lot of work, but it's also an amazing accomplishment for your company, for your employees. And, and taking time to just let that in and celebrate it. And we did a lot of that as well and including our employees in it because it really is the success of the company. It, there's a few people that are very visible in the process but it's really the culmination of so many people's work and, and taking time to recognize that was really important for us. When you joined the company, how many people were, were on your team in the finance department and how many people do you have now? And just tell us what that's like to, to grow quickly. Yeah, so when I joined, there were about 20 people in the finance and accounting team. So the, the accounting team was in pretty good stead. They um, had recently implemented NetSuite, so that was going along, and they had public audits underway. But as I mentioned, there was, there was like one junior FP&A analyst and a massive Excel spreadsheet, and, and that was kind of it. And today, and, and most of the employees were sitting in San Jose. Today, we have about 300 extended employees. I have finance workplace M&A strategy um, and the, yeah, like a finance transformation team. There's about 300 employees on sitting around the globe today. And it's, so, been, it's been amazing. I mean, it happened over time, of course, but we have a really, really great team today. So 20 to 300 people in three or four years. And how did you think about building a team and recruiting people? Did you hire the senior people first and then have them hire their teams? Or did you hire the, the workers first and then hire above them? Or what, what was that like? Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting. So I would say previous to kind of the pandemic, Zoom really focused on trying to, as much as possible, always you know promote from within, and take the expertise of everyone that we had. What happened after the severe growth in the company is we realized like you, you, that is great and we still do that, but you also have to layer in people that have seen the levels of growth that you're, you're experiencing and that you're expecting. And so it's been a little bit of both for me. So um, some teams, as much as we could, we've, we've let them just organically grow and people have grown up into management roles there are certain teams when I realize just 
in terms of my you know, strategic planning for the company, making sure that people sitting behind me have the potential, um, you know, heaven forbid in case something were to happen to me, I have a fiduciary responsibility to the company to ensure that there's somebody sitting there that can step in at least on an interim basis. And so it's been kind of a two-pronged approach, I would say, depending on the types of roles that there are. And, and it's changed over time as companies continue to grow. Any special uh, tips for the people in the audience about how to hire so quickly and how to how to persuade people to join you and how to find great people? So my my number one hiring tip is probably my, my, my number one best advice in general is like trust your instincts. If you are are whatever I have made hiring you know decisions that turned out to be wrong decisions was when I didn't listen to my instincts. I was in a hurry. We try to push it. You just feel like you have to have someone in there. And I'm sure we've all gone through this, but like hiring the wrong person just can, it takes much longer. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible for you, for the, for the candidate, for the person. So really trust your instincts and don't, don't rush it. You'll find the right candidate. You just have to be thoughtful about it, even if it seems painful at the time. And then in terms of you know, recruiting people in, you have to create a vision for them of, not only what the company is going to accomplish, but what your team is going to accomplish and what the opportunity is just is for them as well and how they're gonna to continue to develop and grow in their own career. And that's really important. I mean, making room for people, um, making sure that they have the opportunity that you're gonna, as a, as a boss, you're gonna be able to let go and to really delegate and you have to live up to that because otherwise you're hindering their development and their opportunity as well. And that's what they're there for is to help accelerate you and make you be better. And I also think this anecdote, which you probably all have, but hiring people that are, are better than you are. Like I have a recent example is I hired someone on my team. She is an amazing person. She has amazing degrees in schools that I never even would have gotten into. And that was a little intimidating to me at first. And then I'm like, why you're being silly. Like she's amazing. She's going to make you and your team better. And she absolutely has. So don't, don't be afraid to hire people that are smarter than you are, have better and you know, degrees from better schools than you might, because they'll bring great contributions to your team. When, when you say trust your instincts, do you mean the instinct when you meet someone in an interview? Yes, when the you meet someone thing. in an interview and this, you know, you, we, we've probably all gone through this, right? You see someone, maybe it's you see them on paper and they look perfect and then you meet them and it's not quite right. I... I have this even with my teams. I still interview all managers that are coming into our organization. And I sometimes say no, even my direct reports around people, because I think they're doing it too, right? They're in a hurry. They want someone. I'm like, mm, this isn't quite the right person for this role. And it might be overt. It might be a little, you know, just a little response to something, but don't ignore those little responses that don't feel quite right to you because they really probably aren't indicative of how a person works, what's important to them. If it's coming out within 30 minutes of being someone and it doesn't feel right, then I would say it's probably not gonna be right a year from now. You're saying 30 minutes. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day who said that they pretty much make up their mind within the first five minutes of meeting someone. I don't know if that's what your experience is. I, I absolutely agree. And sometimes even when, me when meetings are scheduled for 30, I'll be done in 15 or 20. And I try to not be rude. I certainly <laughs> don't ever want a candidate to not feel like they're having a great experience. But if it's come to a natural conclusion at that point, I will just relieve us both of that time. 
Well, let's bring it up to today. Uh, you're at this extraordinary company at a very interesting time. Obviously, Zoom grew so quickly over the last two years, but now if, co if, people, if life gets back to normal, people go back to the office, they'll presumably be on Zoom less, your growth rates slowed. What's, your, what's happening now at Zoom and what's your top priority now? Yeah. So for those of us, those of you who may not watch our stock and pay attention to our earnings call, you know this is absolutely top of mind. And Zoom is in a very interesting place. We are really transitioning from being this killer meeting app to being a communications platform. And we have a whole suite of products to support this. We have Zoom Phone, which is our cloud-based PDF solution. We have Zoom Rooms, which is our conferencing solution. We have Zoom Events, which is a recently announced event platform, which will support hybrid experiences in the future, both in person and virtual events. And we also have a chat functionality, Zoom chat. And what we're really focused on now is everybody knows Zoom for the meetings experience. And as organizations especially are thinking about transitioning into some version of hybrid or flexible work in the future, how can Zoom help solve those problems? How do they support them in that? So Zoom phone is a perfect example. It's a portable solution. You can carry it with you on your laptop, on your phone, so you don't have to have a desk phone sitting in an office somewhere that isn't being used. I believe that Zoom Rooms is probably going to play a more critical role than anyone expects in the workplace of the future, meaning we've all gotten so used to this experience where we can see everybody's face on the screen. And we've heard these unfortunate situations where you know, organizations have welcomed their employees back. They put people in a conference room. The people that are not in the conference room, they're working remotely or having a terrible experience is not inclusive. So then the employer says, okay, well now go to your desk and join that Zoom meeting from your desk. And so what, I mean, it's the worst of all worlds, right? You're, you're having them commute and yet not letting them enjoy the experience of being with their colleagues in person. And so we're very focused on making those experiences better. We have things like Smart Gallery, which create a very similar experience to this companion mode. So really listening to our customers and thinking about what is the future of work and how do we support everyone in having a great experience, whatever that looks like, every organization is going to be a little bit different. And that's really what's gonna be the driver of growth in the future. It's not just meetings, it's the combination of this platform and really enabling organizations to have their employees be, first, first of all, safe and supported, but also really efficient and effective no matter where they're working. If, could you elaborate a little more on that? If, if I'm in a meeting and, and four people are in the room and four people are on Zoom, my experience is it's a terrible quality experience. Yeah. But you think there's a solution to that? Yeah. So. We have a feature called Smart Gallery, and what it does, we, hard, we partner with some of our amazing hardware partners to produce this, and what it'll do is it'll have a, a full, so if I say um, there was a conference room in this meeting, there would be a, a view of the full conference room that would show, but then it also like slices up the room into individuals, and it'll do up to a certain number. And then it also tracks so that you see on this, you can see the it's green because I'm speaking right now with the same thing in smart gallery so that you know who is speaking. And it's not quite exactly the same as this, but it's a lot better than having a single camera in a room with a bunch of people. And that's really what we're striving for. And then the, the other experience, if you think about it is um, like this, we have chat on in here so people can do you know, chats and in Q and A. You can't do that if you're sitting in a conference room without a laptop in front of you. So we have something called companion mode that allows you to go into a room and join either with your 
mobile device or your laptop in a silent way. You probably all had that experience too, where you turn on your computer and then the, the mic comes on and there's that terrible echo or the camera's like making up the noise. All those in, you know, unfortunate experiences, we want to do that in a much more elegant way. And that's what companion mode is doing. So with Smart Gallery, there are multiple cameras? Yes, there, well, there's different setups you can do. You can have multiple cameras in the room. Also, some of our hardware partners have set up like neat, that has a neat bar, and that has multiple cameras in the bar itself that can accommodate that. Great. Uh, now, you had an interesting uh, public situation recently that was probably quite a challenge where you tried to acquire 5.9, you announced it, and then there were, uh, I guess there were challenges with it, and then you decided not to do yeah. it. Could you just walk us through that story? What was, yeah. what happened, yeah. and what was your role, and, and uh, yes. what, what were your lessons learned? Yes. So we, you know, yes, as you know, we, we were um, in an agreement. We were planning to acquire 5.9. We were doing the transaction. The transaction was structured as a stock for stock. So rather than setting, you know, a dollar price that we're going to give them cash, we set an exchange ratio and we came up with a ratio based on what we thought was fair at the time that we signed the deal. Now, as many of you know, there's a long time sometimes between that deal and then the closing. And in this case, because 5.9 is a public company, also a needed shareholder vote. And a lot happened during that period of time, including we had an earnings call, there was a, a shift in our stock price. And then activists became very vocal about it. And there was just a lot that went on. And ultimately what happened was there were recommendations also from you know, third parties like ISS to not approve the deal. And the five, nine shareholders ultimately decided not to approve the deal. They voted against it. Now we knew um, in advance of the shareholder vote that this was likely going to be the outcome as we had spent enough time. We, you know, we with shareholders, are, we have many mutual shareholders and we understood that. Um, multiple shareholders, sorry, our mutual shareholders were more in, in favor of it because they were just gonna get more Zoom stock and they were okay with that. But we also knew there's a lot, you can, you gather a lot of information during the period of time. Now, the decision we could have made would have been to sweeten the deal. We could have either put in cash or we could have changed the exchange ratio. But there's, there's two parties to this deal and, you know, we have to take into consideration there are, were of course the five nine shareholders and there were the Zoom shareholders. And we gathered enough information to understand what it likely would take to get the shareholder vote done and we felt like it was just it wasn't going to then be a good deal for the existing team shareholders and it was a very difficult decision we think so highly of the 519 there was absolutely a reason why we wanted them to to join zoom but ultimately felt like the deal that was on the table was a fair one for both sides and that they would have the opportunity to share in the upside and we made a very conscious decision not to sweeten the deal and thus expected is that as it came to be that the shareholder vote would not pass. And so, you know, it was a very difficult decision and we were disappointed absolutely in the outcome, but felt like it was the right decision at the time. And we still think it's the right decision. It just was an unfortunate outcome. Now it's, it's interesting because as a company, I think you have to think about then, then what, and um, you know, we have our, you always have to take, your future into your own hands. And, you know, as a, as a company very quickly pivoted to continuing on internal development around um, what we're calling video engagement center. 
and something that for the future of Zoom will be very important. So in 2020 hindsight, now that you've lived through this, uh, what are your lessons learned for next time? Mm -hmm. um, I think probably we could have done some structuring of the deal differently. Honestly, there probably were some mechanics that might've been able to be put in place that would have helped. Um, you mean college, things like that? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. something like that, that was just, um, we didn't, I mean, for various reasons, we didn't at the time, but you know, cause you don't ever anticipate something like this happening. Looking okay. forwards now, uh, I think if I, for any future deals I'm involved in, right, you always have to think both of the upside and the downside. And how would you want to protect against both sides of that? And I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky, right? You can never predict the future, but there are mechanisms that I would have probably, you know, again, with hindsight potentially put in place that would have helped us get, you know, get the deal across the line. Terrific. Well, uh, Laura, why don't we take this time now to, to switch over to Q&A and you had some other things to talk about as well? Yeah, just really quickly, um, thank you all for joining us. Uh, yeah, we will be taking your questions. A bunch have already rolled in, that's great. Um, but I just wanted to uh, ask everybody on the call, uh, we are Airbase, we are a spend management solution, which means we consolidate all of your non-payroll AP spend. So that's corporate cards, bill payments, reimbursements, and they each have their own customizable approval workflows. There's accounting automation, real-time reporting, and um, you can even get cash back of up to 2.25%. So um, if you're interested in learning more, we would love to reach out to you. Um, and if you take this poll and let us know, we will reach out. Um, so that's all for me. And I'm gonna pass it back to you, Jeff, for questions. Okay, and Laura, should I take the questions from Q&A or would you like to? How, how would I yeah, I think um, you can. Okay, great. There, there are two questions, a quick one. Uh, you had mentioned this firm that helped you with the IPO and you, you gave a ringing endorsement. People wanna know who that is so they can hire them. Sure, it's, it's ICR. ICR. And is there an individual there? Um, there is. Um, why don't I put it into the chat here for everybody so they can okay. see it rather than say it. Great. And uh, next question is, uh, talk about uh, dealing with the board of directors. I'm not sure how, how much you dealt with the board earlier in your career, but certainly with uh, as you, later in your career at Zoom and Zeusk and maybe other places you've you've had dealt with the board. You're also serving on the board of, of Qualtrics, right? When, yeah. As, yeah. Yourself. So maybe talk about both as a CFO, how you deal with the board, and then as a board member, how you deal with your CFO. That'd be interesting too. Yeah. So I think the, the best strategy for dealing with a board is remembering a couple of things. You you want to absolutely be transparent with them. You want to help them help you, which what I mean by that is first, the thing that I always remember, and, and I said this about you, Jeff, when you were my audit committee chair, and I said this about Jonathan as well, your, your board members can help you be better. Listen to them, listen to their questions, take advantage of their knowledge, but also remember, they probably think about you once a quarter, maybe twice a quarter. They have busy jobs, they have other things going on. And so you always need to be thoughtful about what have you shared with them? What do they need to know? And be very specific about if you're asking for something, what do they, what do they, what do they need to know to make this decision for you? And then also probably a very a good lesson that you probably use in other aspects of your business, but like don't, if you have something very important to discuss in a board meeting or an audit committee meeting, don't show up to that meeting 
without having pre-sold it or pre-conditioned them for it. Um, nobody wants to be surprised, you know, at least so your board members, your audit committee members. So I often spend a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with my audit committee and board members outside of regular scheduled meetings. It could be a quick chat, it could be a quick catch up, but helping them understand what's coming and what's important to you so they're not surprised is, is really, I, I think, the most effective way of working with your board. That's great. Next question is about uh, your career. At, you came up through the accounting side. Uh, someone is asking, they are coming up through the FPNA side. How do you think about uh, whether, which is a better career path? And if you are an FPNA and have not, and, and you're not an accounting uh, accountant, uh, is it important to try to get some accounting experience in order to become a credible CFO candidate? I, I don't think it's, no. I mean, I had the good fortune of having had experience on both sides. So I guess my first recommendation would be you have the opportunity, try to rotate and get some, but you, it's not it's not absolutely necessary. Meaning you can hire, you, if you become the CFO, then what you need to do is make sure you hire a really great chief accounting officer or controller. And if you have someone who's really great and very technically astute, that's what you want to make sure. And um, I think the, another important aspect of that is making sure that you and your CAO or your controller have similar viewpoints on the approach you're going to take as a company, um, how conservative or moderately conservative or aggressive you are on accounting stances. Like those are important things to, to agree, if you will, or to at least understand the philosophy because, um, and also have that discussion with your CEO would also recommend that. So that you're all aligned on the stances that you're going to take as a company and what's important to you. Because there's, there's, I mean, accounting is not always black and white. Sometimes it's gray. And I mean, I'll, I had this discussion with my audit firm and my CAO that we took a stance on something in the last quarter that I probably would have taken a different stance. Now, I don't, once my team takes a decision, I don't push them on it, but I shared with them why I thought there was a different perspective on that. And I think that's really important that you're thoughtful about that, no matter which side of the, the, ladder you're coming up. When you think about your own organization, there's some people coming up through the accounting path, some people through the planning and budgeting path. Have you tried to give people cross-functional uh, experience? You think that's important? If if you're the employee, should you ask your boss for that? How, how important is that? Yeah, I think it's really important. So for example, we do this, what we do at Zoom right now, this is an easy way to get people exposure. Everybody wants to know what investor relations is. It's kind of this like black box, like what is it? And it, honestly, until you do it, it's hard to explain to somebody how to do it. So we take people like right now, our controller for the last two quarters has sat in on investor callbacks. And it's just a great way for him to get some exposure, to see the questions, the types of questions, how we address them, what we talk about in those meetings, which seems like this great mystery. It's really not. But that's, he, and he just asked me in one of my one-on-ones one time, like, hey, I'd really like to learn. So I said, great, that's a very easy way to do that. We also do have done and will continue to do more like wholesale moves. We've had people from the accounting side move into FP&A. Um, we've had people like from internal audit move into accounting. So you should absolutely raise your hand. I always say to people like, if you're a valued employee, the best way and place for you to get experience is in with your current employer. Don't feel like you have to leave to get that. You should ask for it where you're valued. You should go and get as much experience as you can and your employer should help you with that. I don't want my employees to leave to go get experience that we can provide them here at Zoom. Uh, that's terrific. Uh, 
let's talk about the sale partnering with sales and marketing uh, zoom i don't know how many salespeople zoom has now but uh, there's a, most companies would have a sales ops operations and uh, sales support sales forecasting how is it organized at zoom what if what was your experience at other places and how, how do you think the finance team can most be be most helpful to the sales organization yeah so the way it's organized at zoom we do have a strong sales ops organization they are responsible for sales enablement. They do territories. Um, they, those are the big areas. They do some reporting, but at Zoom, which I don't know is the case in most organizations, it's a little different than what I've seen. We actually set finance, set, sorry, set the quotas rather, and do and support the forecasting within sales finance. And so we have a head of sales finance who's very close to our CRO. And it, it works really well because it's all aligned then, especially in lines to the budget cycle. It, it's a kind of a seamless fashion for us. And we roll that all up into our you know, budgeting software. Um, in terms of how I think sales and finance can best work together, I think that um, one of the things, if you think about finance, I always say this, like the easiest thing for finance in general, finance and accounting, is just to say no. But if you say no, it's not going to do some business. And oh, by the way, people are going to learn to go around you. And so my, with my team, it's really like, okay, what, what, are, what's, what are they trying to accommodate? Whether it's like a deal support. Like if sales comes just, we also have deal support in our team. They want to structure a deal in a certain way. Okay, why? What, what are they trying to accomplish? What is the customer trying to accomplish here? They want to grow a region. Why? They want to add a launch team. Why? Let's just ask the question so we understand what they're trying to accomplish and then come back to them with a suggestion, hopefully it's yes, we can do that for you, but this is how. Potentially it might have to be no, but then also tell them why. And that's the way you start to build trust and relationships with them so that they know that your interests are aligned with theirs, which is generally growing the business and doing the right thing for the company, but doing it in a way that is still controlled so that you can manage whatever objective it is, if it's you know your operating margin or a certain number of headcount or whatever it is, they'll sit that finance and accounting people have the fiduciary responsibility to hold. And so trying to balance both of those, you have to come with it with an open sense of partnership. Otherwise they're going to go around you, which is the worst place you're going to find yourself in. So you call it the deal support desk and it was deal support team that, and that reports yes. to you. Yes. Because other company companies call it the deal desk or the deal approval team. So it's interesting yeah. about the language that you use. So can yeah. you recall a time where the team did not approve a deal that sales brought in and, and why and how did he do it? How did he deal with that? Um, it's or you're a pushover, you approve everything. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm trying to think about this. At Zoom, it's rare that we don't find a way to accommodate deal. Now, where I will say no is think, okay, so for example, we have something called a free period at Zoom, which is a way that we give, you know, it's, it's effectively another discount it's a way to give the customer time to transition from another provider to us. I have absolutely said no to extended free periods or like, hey, why don't you try this? And, you know, oftentimes when you give the rep a different perspective, they can figure it out and get within the realm of what you want. Like we, of course, we put things through margins. We look at margin calculators and just trying to help them figure out where it makes sense. Um, I do say no to sales sometimes, but again, I really try not to. If we can accommodate it in another way, trying to help them find another solution that meets the objectives is what I really strive for. 
So uh, for everyone on this call who's not a current Zoom customer, you're saying you're gonna you're gonna subsidize people to transition from whatever you're using out of Zoom. Is that what you're saying? We do require proof that uh -huh. you have an existing contract with another provider. But yes, we will happily, and I'm happy to be your sales rep in any of those deals. So please come forward. Great. We have an interesting question about the industry. About uh, we've all saw uh, Mark Zuckerberg's Meta announcement about VR. Yeah. Uh, do you think his vision of the future where we're all living in a VR world will somehow compete with Zoom? And, and do you share that view or Eric share that vision? And, and how do you think uh, Zoom will live in the, in the meta world? So Eric has always had this objective of making Zoom meetings better than in-person meetings. And some of the ways that we do that are things like transcription or um, translation. So if you think about how what Meta is coming to, I think that it fits within that grander vision. And we are partnering with them and some other software providers around thinking about what is the future of Meta? What does that mean? So I don't think it competes. I think it's going to converge is what it's going to do at some point. How that looks, I don't exactly know. I don't think anybody does, but I think it's going to come together at some point in the future. That's it'll be pretty interesting for us to to live in that. Uh, you had yeah. a, you, you talked about living in Amsterdam for for three and a half years. Uh, talk a little bit more about that experience and whether what your advice to people would be about whether or not they should do an international rotation at some point. So first of all, I again it's back to my my career strategy is like take any opportunity that continues to open doors for you and. Two areas in my, in my career that really helped was my tax rotation and my international rotation. I can't tell you how many times when I got calls for jobs, it was because they appreciated one of those two experiences that differentiated me from other candidates. So there's certainly that, it makes you more marketable. I will tell you from a personal and a professional perspective, it's amazing. Living outside of wherever you have lived, is really helpful. And I think that it's an experience and a perspective that helps me even today. And it's little things. I will tell you, little things. When I first got to Zoom, it was like our all hands were always at one time every day. And I'm like, you know, we have employees on a globe that are around the globe here. How are we accommodating them in these meetings? And it's little things like that, but it really helps you think outside of, of whatever the perspective the rest of your team might have or your company might have. And I think it, it is really important when you think about all of us serve customers, hopefully on a global basis. And so having some of that perspective is, is really important. And then just personally, I got to travel a lot during that time. I've now been to over 60 countries. And I think having that personal fulfillment also has just enriched my life in a way that I'm sure carries through to my job. I was interested to hear you said the two key experiences were your international experience at uh, in Amsterdam, but also your tax experience, which is a, that surprised me because plenty of people who are CFOs don't have tax experience. Why did you, why do you think that was so important? Well, I think that it just gives me another skill to draw on that is a differentiation. So I guess what I should say is that I don't know that it's really changed my career trajectory that much, but it has, it is a differentiating when you think about all the resumes that people look at every day or all the LinkedIn profiles, differentiation is, is hard to come by, right? A lot of us have very similar experiences at amazing companies and having something that sets you apart is, is helpful. And that's what I think that's done for me. 
We have a question here about Zoom's internal planning process uh, or your annual operating process, business reviews and things like that. Uh, I guess both your annual budget, if you have a long range plan, can you just tell us how you how you operated Zoom and whether there are some uh, tactics that other people could adopt? Yeah, so we do have an annual planning process, which we are right in the midst of right now since our fiscal year end is January. And then we come up with a plan and what we do is on a quarterly basis, then we have quarterly business reviews with the exec team where we talk about what are, you know, here are our strategic initiatives, have they changed at all? And then based on that, there is a funding process. We, we do hold some dollars back in contingency when we do the annual planning process. And some are earmarked to then potentially be given out for strategic investments during the year. Some are earmarked for unexpected ideas or unexpected, sorry, um, issues like potentially legal that you largely can't control. So we then go through a quarterly cadence and our business partners are great. They all know that if they don't get their budget requests or additional requests in during the budget cycle, the quarterly review cycle, then they have to wait to the next. We don't do off cycle approvals any longer. It just got too unwieldy. I mean, we did a lot of that during the pandemic, but now we've stopped. And again, I think it's back to if you communicate with your business partners and make sure that they understand this is the framework in which they have to ask for requests, but outside of that, as a team, you've got to maintain, you, you have to figure out how to manage it. Otherwise, it just gets completely unwieldy. We have another question about corporate strategy, comparing you to other people in the industry like Discord and Slack. Right now, many people will use Zoom for video conference. They use Slack for chat, essentially. Yeah. Do you see a world in the next couple of years where Zoom, Slack, and maybe even Discord end up with overlapping functionality and become uh, direct competitors? So Slack has always been a great partner of ours. We still, and even when they were a standalone company, you have the ability, for example, to one-click launch a Zoom meeting from within a, a Slack channel. And, you know, I, I think what you're going to see is companies still want flexibility and they want the ability to choose the tool that works best for them. And our approach, you know, so everything we do at Zoom is focused on delivering happiness to our customers and our employees. And for our customers, what that means then is listening to them. So even though one of our largest competitors is Microsoft, they are also one of our largest partners as well, where you can also like launch a Zoom meeting from within a Teams user interface because people want to use Teams for chat as well, but they want to use Zoom for a phone and for meetings. So I don't know exactly how this is going to play out over time. What we're focused on is doing what's right for our customers and making sure they get the products that work together seamlessly if that's what they want. We have a, a career question about uh, divisional CFOs. Do you have a divisional structure at Zoom, by the way? Or is everything? No, we do not. So at a company, maybe Cisco had a divisional structure, right? Yes, they the did. Division. So if you were a if you were the CFO of WebEx, a divisional CFO, and your ambition yep. is to become the CFO of the parent company, what advice would you have for that divisional CFO? My experience being, I was a divisional, I was had two different divisional CFO titles at Cisco. And it's kind of like I said, it, it was great because I learned a ton about working with a business partner, effectively the CEO of those divisions. And I learned all about the forecasting and the budgeting process. What I was missing was all the external facing pieces. So if you're in a company in the divisional CFO world, then I would say, Try to do what you can to learn about your investor relations process, maybe your corporate FP&A process, whoever's driving like guidance 
who's ever setting up those calls, spend some time there. So you really have that experience because that's probably the piece that you're lacking potentially and, or make sure that you understand the divisions outside of the one that you're the divisional CFO for, because if you're aspiring to be the broader CFO, you need to understand way beyond just what's in your division today. Well, Kelly, this has been a terrific conversation. I have two final questions. Uh, one is if you think back on your career, all the people you've worked with, all the mentors you've, you've seen, what's the best advice uh, anyone's given you? best advice anybody's given me. I think some of the best advice I've ever given, I've been given is, when you, this is when I was coming into a company and I was really excited about making a big impact. And the, the advice was like, what, be really thoughtful about the problem that you're trying to solve. And what that meant to me was we all have so many experiences to draw on. And what you have to do is make sure that no matter what environment you're in, drawing on your experience and your expertise, but making sure that you're adapting it for the here and the now, especially as you're transitioning. We talked a lot about transitions today. When you're transitioning, trying to bring a playbook from over here, what might've worked here and plop it here is probably not gonna work. And it sounds silly, but it was really insightful and, and helpful to jog me into like, oh, right. Like I know a lot, I know how to fix this problem for them, but I need to do it in a different way than I probably was planning to. So if you're in a new role, does that imply you don't need to take action immediately necessarily? You could sort of wait, learn the culture, learn the people, yes. learn, the, learn the history before yep. you take action. Absolutely. And if you were going to write a chief financial officer playbook, uh, what's something that CFOs on this call can do tomorrow to help their companies or their careers uh, that, you might, that you might help them with? I, I think... The biggest thing that I learned when I was the CEO, as opposed to being the CFO, is when you're a CFO, you're an advisor. And we have all of a lot of responsibility, but ultimately you're not making that decision. You're advising. And that's a comfortable position in some ways to be in. Now, try to put yourself in the role of your CEO and really think about this CEO has to make this decision what would I do or what would I need or what are the other things that they are thinking about in addition to what I'm trying to influence them or get them to do or think about. And I think we would all be a lot better if we really thought beyond just, this is our view as a CFO. There's many other considerations that a CEO has to consider. That's what our role is to really help, you know, make decisions for the company and support our CEO, trying to take that different perspective. It's hard, it's really hard. It's really hard when you're sitting in another role but it's very, very different than sitting in the CFO seat. So in addition to, to playing your position and, and playing the CFO role, you should be thinking about the, the, the organization and the company and, and how it affects other parts of the company as well. Yeah. Well, Kelly, this has been an incredible conversation. It's wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much. Uh, Lauren, thank Kelly, you. any uh, final comments? I just wanna say uh, thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, Jeff and Kelly for joining us. And thanks everyone for your really amazing questions. Um, we hope we'll see you next month uh, for uh, the CFO of LinkedIn, Steve Sordello. So thanks everyone. I love Steve, he's great. <laughs> cool. Have a great day, everybody. Great. Bye everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.